It's good to see you all today. For those I haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor of New Hope Church. We normally say this at the end, but if you're a guest here, um, two things. One, if you want to know more about our church, you can scan the QR code in the back of this bulletin. Give us your email address. We'd love to be connected with you and share more about our church. And we kind of informally, people go out to eat after the service. And if you're a guest here, we'd love for you to get to know us more by joining us for lunch. All right. And so no pressure. But if you're like, hey, I'm going to eat anyways and I want to get to know the church more, let us know. And we'd love to take you out for lunch and, and hang out together. So that's right after the service. All right. So it's been said that knowing the past can help us better understand the present you truly want to understand the present, you've got to know the past. Um, it's important to know what happened before so that we can understand what's happening now. We see this all the time. You look out and if you read the news and you find out what's happening in the world, like right now in particular, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia and even how Putin came into power and some of the things that influenced and shaped him. If you see headlines about the fact that we might be on the verge of another world war, if you understand world history, you can kind of understand how we are where we are today, so we can understand what's happening now. And it also ought to, when history informs us the way it should, affect the way we move forward as well. It should affect the way that we live now. But there are times, if you're like me, if you were in, in, in high school or college and you're learning about history, you're like, why are we learning about this? Like, what does this have to do with now? What does this have to do with the present? What does this have to do with me, with us? Well, today we're going to look at history, and I hope you don't come to the same conclusion. I hope you don't read the verses that we're going to read or hear what we hear today, we discuss today, and say, this has nothing to do with me. In fact, I actually hope that you will read this, the scriptures today with me. We're going to explore several of them today and discover that this is your story. This is a part of your history. We're going to look at a prayer, a dialogue with God that changed the world. An interaction between Peter and God that changed the world, and yes, it affects us today down to this room. But it's going to be a little different. As you can see, there are so many verses in the back of this bulletin. And I, I, I'm kind of committed to this being a technology-free zone, right? <laughs> That's why we haven't gone to screens and, and all of that. Like, I, I like to hold something and for us to read scripture. And, and so I know this is like size 7 font, and you might <laughs> need to pull out a magnifying glass, and we have a lot of verses. It's going to be kind of like a Bible study today, all right? Because I really want us to appreciate a couple things. One, we're going to see what God has done in history, what God did in Peter, and as a result, what God may do in us. So what God did in history, what God did in Peter, and as a result, what he may do in us. And we'll see how this interaction with God that Peter had, this prayer, ended up changing the world. Let's look at the first thing, what God did in history. All right, so let's go back to the very beginning. God created Adam and Eve to live in perfect unity with one another, with creation, and more importantly, with him. And the moment that they rebelled against God and his one revealed command, which is don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, once they rebelled against that, creation warred against them, and they also had, there was division created between them as well. They were naked and unashamed walking in the garden, but now they decided to cover themselves, and they, were, they, they didn't want to be vulnerable to God, and they didn't want to be vulnerable to each other. They didn't show in their feeling of shame and covering themselves, right? So because of their rebellion against God, it had catastrophic effects upon all of creation. 
and you don't have to get very far. Right after that episode, you have the first domestic dispute, and it's pretty, pretty serious. Cain kills his brother, Abel, out of jealousy. So the very first, <laughs> the very first act after that is murder within a family. And it doesn't get any better. It gets more and more violent. You get to Genesis 6, and God is like, there, every thought and behavior and intention of human beings is wicked. And in his mercy, he decides to preserve a family, Noah's family, and decides to judge all of creation with a flood. And then you keep going, you discover that it doesn't get better even after that, even after just preserving Noah. You get to Genesis 11, and you, you see that people seem to be coming together. And they say, we're going to build a tower up to the heavens. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And for those who are familiar with the story, it's known as the Tower of Babel. And it sounds like it's a good thing, right? Especially here in New York City, if people are unified, that's all that matters. Well, not according to the Bible, right? Like, what unites you matters. And this is primarily an affront against God. It's an act of rebellion against God. It's an act of pride against God. And if they are united in their pride, in their rebellion against God, it's going to continue to let the poison in the world continue. So what does God do? We're a multicultural church. You want to know your history and how we started to get different languages and how we were scattered? God comes to the earth and he gives people different languages. And he scatters them throughout the world. I've heard people say, well, why do you do that? Like, why? like, they seem to be working together. Well, again, if they continue to work together in their pride and their affront against God, it would have had even more catastrophic effects upon creation. So he gives them different languages and he scatters them. And you think, okay, well, is that the end of the story? No. God is going to bring them together, and that's where we kind of pick up here. What did he do in history? Let's look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It's the first little verse there on, on your bulletin. This is now, that was Genesis 11, okay, the Tower of Babel. This is chapter 12 now. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. So he's just scattered people with different languages because of their affront against God. The very next chapter, he shows that he still has the nations in mind, and he wants to actually bring them together through Abraham's lineage. So God chose Abraham and his descendants not to exclude the nations, but through Abraham be a blessing to the nations and bring them together again one day. But here's the problem. What's the problem in all this? People don't know God. It's clear in the history of Genesis, as you look in the story of Genesis, that people rebel against God. They don't know his character, his heart. They don't understand his holiness. They don't know the ways of the Lord. So God gave Abraham's descendants, as we get to Moses, he gave them his law, which revealed his character, which showed his holiness. And the goal was that he, they would, he would give Abraham's descendants a law so that they would be a light to the nations. And that the, other, the, the nations around would know the ways of God through Israel. They would know the way of righteousness before God. But then there was another problem. Abraham's descendants never fulfilled their calling to be a blessing to the other nations. Instead of being a light to the other nations and in, in, in revealing the character and holiness of God, they often compromised uh, the, the ways of God. Uh, they compromised what they knew to be true and started to become like the nations, worshipped other gods, and they didn't actually tell people about the ways of God. They actually ended up assimilating instead to, uh, uh, to idolatry. Or they would exclude themselves from others. 
It didn't help the Gentiles, the Gentiles mean any non-Jewish person, that they would often oppress the Jews as well. So there was a very hostile relationship, right? Like they would live within these other nations and say, I don't want to be a part of your customs. We are very unique. We're, we're going to exclude you. We're not going to include you in. And at the same time, people would look at that and say, this is a strange people and oppress them as well. So there was a hostile relationship. But here's what we discover. God's promise and plan to redeem the nations and bring them in would, would not be thwarted. I love this. This is through the prophet Isaiah. This is hundreds of years after what God said in Genesis 12. Look at this. This is in Isaiah 19, 23 through 25. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Syrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. That's remarkable. I, I'm, I find this to be so moving because for most of my life, I saw myself as a Christian who was really a part of someone else's religion, if that makes sense, okay? So I grew, I, I was born in India, but I grew up here, and I just saw that I always understood Christianity to be a Western religion. It's like Christianity is something in the West. We heard about, uh, about American churches sending missionaries to other parts of the world, trying to take Christianity to other parts of the world, and most of the people that I learned theology from and learned the Bible from were not Indians, were others, right? So I just thought that this was kind of an imported, borrowed religion on, on my part. It's just the way that I grew up. I'm not saying it was right. It was real. That's the way that I understood it. So passages like this that show it was always God's intention right, to bring us in that it's actually not a Western religion, it's actually an Eastern religion, and God promised through an Eastern family to bring us all in. When, that it was foretold through the prophet Isaiah that all the nations, he would look at Egypt, the people that even used to oppress Israel, you will be my people, Assyria is my handiwork, Israel is my inheritance, that he would bring all of us in together. Here we see language reserved for Israel is now spoken of Egypt and Israel, Assyria. Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. It shows centuries after he made that promise to Abraham that God was going to keep his promise. He was going to bless the nations. He was going to make them one family, one people, and he would do it through someone from Abraham's line. He did it through Jesus. So how did he do that? All right, so remember I said, that people rebelled against God, they didn't know his ways, and because he's a holy God, and they rebel against him, they were under his wrath. Like, they have to know his righteous ways and be righteous in order to be accepted by a righteous God. And the only people on the earth that know the ways of God, that could teach the world about the ways of God, were Israel, but they were not doing their job. They were not fulfilling their calling. So how on earth would God do this? How would he bring these people together? This is what he did through Jesus Christ. Let's look at Ephesians 3, 12, I mean, uh, to Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. Speaking of Jesus, this is what Paul says. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh, that is, in his body, the law with its commands and regulations, 
His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them, Jews and Gentiles, to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Okay, what does that mean? What did Jesus do? Uh, I like what it says in the ESV that, he, that he, 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 he killed the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And that wall of hostility was the law, right? It was what stopped the Gentiles from knowing the ways of God, from truly being righteous. They were still held accountable, but they didn't know the ways of God. And that became the wall from them becoming the people of God. But it also, stu- it also was a stumbling block as well because for, for the Jews to actually go out and, and, and be with the Gentiles because they were just thinking about their own purity. But Jesus removed it. How? What did he do? Well, he nullified the law. He made it powerless. It no longer had the power to make a person righteous. It never did. Righteousness is now through faith in Jesus Christ, irrespective of the law. You don't need the law to be righteous in God's eyes anymore. Gentiles who never have the law can be righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. And not obeying the law is now powerless to condemn us too. It can no longer condemn us because even though we have failed to keep God's law, we are now forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So it's powerless to make us righteous and it's powerless to condemn us. So that dividing wall of hostility has been ru- removed so that Jews and Gentiles who have faith in Jesus Christ can come together as one people pledging, alleg- uh, pledging allegiance to Jesus as their Lord. He has done it. And so this is what Paul says in Galatians 3, 8, writing to the church in Galatia. This is what he says about the verse we've read in the very beginning. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham when he said all the nations will be blessed through you. That means in Genesis 12, when God was saying this to Abraham, after he had scattered the nations in their different languages, and the very next chapter speaks to Abraham, God was foretelling the gospel. I'm going to bring you all in together. You're going to be one people, one family, and through someone in your line, Jesus Christ, I'm going to do it through him. He was preaching the gospel in advance. That through Christ, not the law, not obedience to the law, not righteousness in the law, not through adhering the law, not through our works, but through Christ, we could be reconciled to one another and reconciled to God. That's a lot. Let's stop. Any questions about any of that? Anything there? As I was preparing this, I just think it's remarkable. You know, you look around this room, you see the different people represented here, right? You know, just think about your, like, like what, what he has done to unite us as one family. I was telling the team this morning, he's a promise-keeping God. All the different times that we could have thwarted his plan. We could have thwarted his plan and his agenda. What he was going to do, our sin, our rebellion, crucifying the Son of God, he still used that to fulfill his purpose to unite all things under the Lordship of Christ. 
He's a promise-keeping God. He's a faithful God. I look around and you just look around this room, you see that he has done it. So that's what he did in history. But the apostles still needed to understand that this was what God was doing. And so we looked at what he did in history. Now we're going to look at what he does in Peter. Let's read Acts 10, 9 through 20, and then 23 through 28. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted to something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So he invited them to be guests, to, in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius, the following day, oh, yeah, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm, I'm a man, I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. I can't say with certainty, but there is scholarship to suggest that this was years after the ascension of Jesus Christ in the, in the day of Pentecost, right? This was years after the birth of the church that the Gentiles still had not heard the gospel, right? There's some conversation about the Ethiopian eunuch, right, and wh whether that's in, in the timeline, but this is understood as a time that the Gentiles received, at least Cornelius and his whole household, who they were not Jews, right, received the gospel. All this time, the apostles believed the gospel, but still functionally, right? They, they believed that even though Jesus is the way to salvation, they believed the law, becoming, uh, adopting Jewish practices and adhering to the law is still what allows you to be included into the people of God. So this is a time for, for God to show Peter that his intention was always to bring the nations in under the lordship of Christ. 
Peter knows that Jesus is the only way to salvation, but at this point he still believes that the law must play a role to the point where he's a little apprehensive about going into a Gentile's home because he thinks he might be unclean. That's not morally unclean. It just means that he's got to go through some rituals and a process of going before God. He doesn't realize that this is not the case anymore. And it's in this prayer, we call this a prayer that changed the world, this interaction with God, that God tells him, don't call unclean what I have called clean. Don't call unacceptable what I have called acceptable. Don't call unholy what I have actually called holy. He tells Peter, essentially, don't exclude the Gentiles. Even though Peter's just trying to understand what does his vision mean, the very next thing that happens is Cornelius' his people comes to take him. What Peter comes to discover is that the gospel is for them too. Now, let's, most of us here, actually almost all of us here, are Gentiles. Like when we read a passage like this, you try to see yourself in the story, right? And if we're really accurate about this, we'd see ourselves in Cornelius and like his family and friends who did not have access to the gospel or the ways of God, right? And we tend to, to see ourselves in a story. But here, you might also, if you're, if you're a Christian and you've got the truth, like to think about, well, how am I like Peter in some ways? Like how is it, what are the ways that I exclude other people? What are the legalisms that I have that prevent me from being with people or treating them functionally as if the gospel is available to them. And we're going to see a couple of things, that barriers that had to be broken down for Peter. But our own legalisms today could be, yeah, I use that word legalisms as things that could be barriers as the color of our skin. Or just as it was for them, it was our culture. The early church was a multicultural church. Many of them were, at least. And so it wasn't just like we had different languages. There were things that they each other did, that they did to offend each other. Like, did they observe the Sabbath? Well, Jews certainly wanted to. Gentiles didn't necessarily care to. Like, Gentiles were okay with eating meat. That was really offensive to some of the Jews, and they had to learn to coexist together, right? And so in, in, in all of this, we might have our own cultural barriers, right, that keep us apart. Sometimes it's education or wealth. I think the number one thing today, at least in Western society, is politics in America. Like, I have shared this story with, with you guys before about when I was in um, Sugar Hill Cafe, and when a woman found out that I was a pastor, uh, she asked, the one first thing she asked is, do you have any Trump supporters in your church? And I said, yeah, I'm sure we do. She was like, I'll never walk, I'll never walk into a church with Trump supporters. I'm like, aren't you supposed to be the more inclusive one here? Like, how is it that you're telling me, like, we've got people all over the political spectrum. Like, we make room for different views. We make room for different experiences, different cultures. We've got different things that exclude us. And I want you to notice three things that happen here for Peter that showed that God was beginning to undo the way that he, 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 his pattern of thinking. Now, it's not perfect, because even after this episode, if you go to Galatians chapter 2, you'll discover that after this happened, the Apostle Paul has to confront Peter because he still discriminates. Like, whenever he was around Jewish people, he'd, he'd, he'd act like he doesn't really know the Gentiles, and he'd act like the Gentiles needed to assimilate to Jewish customs. And Paul had to confront him and say, hey, he actually specifically said, you are not walking in step with the gospel. The gospel proclaimed to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him, through Christ. Right? So Peter still struggled with this, but this, here's a couple of things that we noticed started happening in his life. The first, we see three things. He shares a common space with them. Let's read 23 and then 28 through 29 again. So he invited them in to be his guest. 
The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. The next day Peter started going out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. Let's read 28 and 29. Here he tells them, he said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. That means prior to this moment, he would never share a space with a Gentile. Or like, he, he would never voluntarily do that without thinking about all these things of ways he's unclean or how it's a, somehow going to create a barrier in his relationship with God. Like he wasn't able to do that. So the first thing we see is that he shares a common space with them. So I want you to think about people that you typically exclude. Based on certain legalisms that you have, again, whether it's color of skin or culture or education or wealth or politics, are there people that you wouldn't invite into your space? Who are they? Are there certain people where you would never want to be in their space? Who are they? Are there certain people that you think would make you unclean? Who are those people? And could it be that maybe, as we think about who these people are for us today, that God would call us to share a common space with them? Now, I want, you to, be, I want to be clear here. What I mean is, we're, we, we need to be vigilant over our hearts to make sure that we are not being influenced and being led away from God. But just like the people of God were called all throughout history, we are called to be a blessing to others, right? And that means we have to be in other people's spaces to be willing to engage people and, and share the hope of Christ with them. So who are they? What common spaces can you share? Here's the second thing that happens. He shares a common humanity. Look at verse 25 and 26. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Now, I'm not saying that this was the first moment that Peter like, would, would say, I'm only a man. He did this earlier, too, and it, there was a miracle. I think it's in Acts 5, or, or maybe it's in Acts 3 or 4, where there's a man that's healed, and everyone is marveling at Peter and John. And he's like, why are you looking to us as if it's our, by our power or by our purity that this man was made whole? He's made whole by the power of God. So he, he, it's not that this is the first moment that he realized that he's just a human being. But this is an extra, it's an important moment, at least for Cornelius to understand. Cornelius treats him like he's an angel. Right? He bows in reverence at his feet, and he's like, look, I'm just like you. So he goes from sharing a common space, inviting people into his space, and going into someone else's space that he would otherwise avoid, and he also acknowledges their common humanity. I'm just like you. I'm a mortal like you. I'm a human being just like you. I want you to think about who that is for you. Now, there are two angles to this. Um, you could take the angle of acknowledging your common humanity by saying... Um, you're just like me, or you could take the approach by saying, I'm just like you. And I'll tell you why that's a little different. Um, if there are people you deify, like you really revere, like maybe like Cornelius, maybe you need to realize, hey, you know what? You're just like me. Yeah, you may be my boss. Yeah, you may have all this power in society. Yeah, you might be someone that everyone else esteems and everyone else may revere, but you're just like me. We have a common humanity. And some of you may need to say it the other way around, like, I'm just like you. Like, if there are certain people that you might exclude, if there are certain people you might look down on, 
there are people that you would think like, oh man, you're impossible. Like, you're, you, you, there's no hope for you. Or, you know, I'm so much better than you. Maybe you, the way you share the common humanity is by saying, actually, you know what? I'm just like you. <laughs> like, I, I, I need mercy just like you need mercy, right? You might need to, need to say that. Um, I think I, none of my stories are original, so I probably have said this to you before, too. Um, I remember the first time I realized that my dad was a human being. And I know that's like a, that's like a weird thing to say. I didn't have a very good relationship with my dad growing up. And I remember while I was in college, we went out to eat once, and we were sitting in the car afterwards, and we were talking. And I asked him questions that I never thought about asking before. And um, questions like, you know, what did you want to do when you grew when you were a kid? Like, what did you want? And, and how did you meet mom? My, my parents were divorced and, and all this. We had a really dysfunctional family. Like, what, you know, how did you get married? And what did you want in, when you were, were dating? They, they weren't dating. <laughs> like when you wanted, when you thought, saw yourself getting married one day before it was arranged and all of that, right? And he was sharing his hopes and dreams and fears and anxieties. And for the first time, I realized, wow, like, you're just like me. <laughs> right? I'm just like you. Like, I, there aren't many things in life that have, that have taught me to be more compassionate towards my, my parents and, and marriage and having kids. <laughs> like, I realize how challenging it is. And that doesn't exonerate, like, me or them for all the mistakes that we've made in our lives. But there is a moment that I realize you're, you're not all that different. And I'm not all that different. And I want you to think about someone you tend to exclude. Someone either you deify or, can I use this word, dehumanize by seeing them as someone less than you. Think of someone that you tend to exclude. Do you see yourself in them? Do you see them in you? Do you see your common humanity? Maybe that's the second barrier that would have to break. So he, shows, he shares a common spaces, a space with them, a common humanity. And the third thing we see is that he shares a common savior. Let's read 44 through 48. This is after he shares the gospel with them. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. He realized in sharing the gospel, in being confirmed with this Holy Spirit given to them, that they indeed share a common Savior. What Peter needed to see most is that Jesus wasn't more his Savior than others. Jesus wasn't more available to him than other people. They shared a common Savior. Jesus is not bound to one culture, one people, or one nation. But all nations of the earth would be blessed in Jesus Christ. This is a prayer, an event that changed the world. You see, we have many things that divide us today, as I said the color of our skin, our politics, our experiences of, of the world. But if you're thinking about, if that part about sharing a common humanity, do I see myself in them or see myself, them in me? Like, if you can't think of anything, there's at least one thing we can all say that we have in common. We share an equal rebellion against God. 
We share a broken humanity in need of redemption and restoration. We share an equal need for grace, mercy, and a Savior. And God has provided Christ for us all so that through Christ we can share in forgiveness, redemption, and adoption as sons and daughters of God, children of God. Egypt, my people. India, Korea, my people. America, my people. Europeans, my people. Africa, my people. We, all said, we already said Egypt, I know, right? But like all peoples of the world, right? My handiwork. If we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, that means as a result, we are also brothers and sisters. And so as we think about what God did in history and what God did in Peter, how does that shape what he may do in us? Well, ask yourself, what common space do I need to share with others so that I can be a light to them? What common humanity do I need to acknowledge before others? And what common Savior do I need to see that we have? Or what, what ways can I acknowledge we have a, a common Savior? Because if we don't know history, we won't understand our present. And it won't lead us and motivate us to move forward with the calling that we have to bring the nations in so that all the nations will be glad and worship Jesus Christ our Lord. We are not a multicultural church because of our strategies or our skill. It's not because we held up a sign and say, immigrants and diversity welcome. It's not because it's on our website. Any unity we have, any genuine unity we have as brothers and sisters, hear me, New Hope Church, is the unfolding of God's promise and plan. It is a testament to his faithfulness to, be a, to bless the nations and the world and to bring them together in one family under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So as a result, let us go to him now in prayer, worship him for being a faithful God, for keeping his promise, and ask him how we too may be a light to others.